0: MSW Media This year we witnessed history being made as indictments and guilty pleas continue to mount the president was implicated in a crime and a supreme court justice was confirmed amidst great controversy We've discussed all of these topics and more with you as they happen Today, MSNBC legal analyst Joyce Vance and I will look back at the past year, talk about what we see coming in 2019, and answer as many of your questions as possible. So let's get On Topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. So, Patty, before I I get to what we're talking about, you know, ordinarily we get right to the point. I know people's time is valuable, so we we like to do that, and we have a lot of analysis and a lot of questions we're going to be answering today, but, you know, we just—this is our first episode since the holiday and our our last one of 2018, and so I just—I think it's important for us to recognize all of our listeners because, really— all of you have made this a success, and it's been amazing to see the reception that we've gotten in, in just, what is it, been four or five months that we've been doing this?
1: I, it has been remarkable, and I and I do uh, appreciate how many people really want it's so much to happen, right? And and I think what's hard for many of us who don't have law degrees and obviously have not participated that much in the legal system, it, it's hard because we're learning that it is a long process. Investigations, indictments, all these different aspects of what's happening and, and people really want results. But I think having this conversation has helped a lot of
0: people. Well, I you know, I I started tweeting and writing about legal issues because I saw that there was a lot of confusion about things and I wanted to sort of help people understand what was going on. And part of, I'd say, the impetus for starting this podcast was that, you know, when I would be on television, I'd be asked two questions, maybe three, during a segment. And there's often a lot of detail to get into. Uh, And people were asking me a lot of questions online. And this is a way for me to not only answer a lot of people's questions and try to provide context, but also... To bring in people who really know their stuff, when we've had, for example, election lawyers, immigration mm-hmm. lawyers, uh, you know, people who had had a variety of experiences that they give them an insight that w- we don't have. I think it educates all of us, and I've learned a lot from the experience. And so I thank thanks to all of you, and I also um, you know want to thank everybody else who's made this possible. First, starting with you, Patty, um, I really appreciate you know how much you have brought to this podcast, and and really become Coming a better friend with you throughout this process. Oh, thank
1: you! Right back at you. It's and, been great.
0: And, 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 thank you. And I, I, you know, we have our producer Tom Hush, Yay, Tom. Uh, There you go. Who's made this uh, fantastic podcast? Just so everyone understands, this is a labor of love that I I fund personally. And uh, Tom uh, edits and puts together. Me and Patty do this often on the fly when there's breaking news. Uh, so this is this is a a small group effort here. But So thank you all. And also, we couldn't do this without our friends at Cars Against Humanity, particularly Max Temkin, who's allowed us to use their first-class studio. So um, let's get right uh, to it. I know there's a lot of questions and a lot to talk about. Uh, Before we um, get into some of the details, one thing I wanted to address is a a question and or a suggestion that has come up recently from some of you that we get more conservative legal voices on the podcast I thought it was an interesting um, suggestion because I like to um, interact and engage with people who have different views I try to do that on Twitter sometimes people don't like it I've had some people uh, you know message me and, and email me saying that they didn't like that I was doing that but i think it's important and i think there's something to be gained there but one thing i've noticed is a lot of folks that are uh, i would say on the right that are that are commenting on legal issues you know relating to the trump presidency many times and i think i've mentioned this once before in the podcast their their views are so divorced from reality that it's very hard to engage with them so i don't know if it would be possible for me to have A reasonable conversation with Greg Jarrett, because the man makes assertions that appear to be divorced from reality, as far as I'm concerned.
1: I do the same thing on my show. We do have conservatives on the show, but there are some who are, you know, who do appearances on local television here in Chicago. And when I watch them, I'm like, I can't, none of this makes any sense. You know, they bring in things that are are fantastical.
0: It's yeah, it's exa- just if it, if something is can be is actually factually inaccurate and it can be proven. So and, and you are making assertions that are very bold and grand, but are not supported by evidence. I just think it's it, it, I, I couldn't ha- give that person any sort of platform or have any sort of reasonable conversation with the person. You know, Alan Dershowitz, uh, you know, is somebody who has intelligent views, but he deliberately misleads the public for whatever reason. Uh, many of you have speculated on that. I've seen your speculation. Um, now th- there are, you know, Andrew McCarthy is an interesting example of someone who um, I have en- engaged with some, and, and at one point I was citing him to note that even he uh, believed that Donald Trump would be indicted, which I have, don't go that far. I don't, I don't know whether that will be the case, right. but I thought it was an interesting turning point. But sometimes he says things that are very silly. Um, and, uh, you know, appear to be not supported by anything that I could tell. They appear to be, de- you know, sort of deceptive as far as I can tell. So I'm I'm looking for the right, you know, sort of person who's willing to engage in these issues. And one thing I do want to say, cause, and, and I'm saying this because I want all of you to understand how I view things and perhaps to become more educated consumers of legal analysis and of the news Uh, You know, I think that the fact that so many folks on the right are divorced from reality and are not grappling seriously with developments of the news has had an impact on the debate that we have, the public debate. So uh, I think that a lot of times when there's a new legal development, when there's a guilty plea, a search warrant, an indictment. There are multiple ways that you could view that. You know, you could view you could have a more, um, I say, expansive view. Um, you know, if you're against Trump, maybe what you might call an optimistic view. Uh, there might be someone who would have a more grounded or cautious view right. of of things. And I don't see a, there's not enough debate about that. And a lot of times, I think things get skewed in a more explosive or more um, uh, more speculative uh, direction because there isn't people enough people on the other side saying, "Well, hey, that's not necessarily the case," or trying to get into the weeds on these issues. I try to do that sometimes, um, as much as I can, frankly, to try to be as grounded as possible to give you all a perspective and keep and make sure that you're you're not getting hopes that are out of. Um, that are incongruent or that aren't aren't that are not grounded in what's actually happening and you know sometimes uh, th- there are some people out there that that makes they have speculative views that I just don't engage with you'll never have I'll never have them on the podcast the people that are on the podcast uh, like Joyce are people who I respect who I think bring something really valuable to the table and you know the, if I ever have somebody on who I think is engaging a speculation that I think is not grounded in reality, I will tell you. But one thing that I will say and this um, that's part of the reason I'm introing this before we bring in Joyce is I think Joyce is somebody who is more uh, has read more into what Mueller will do than I have. And one thing that maybe all of you could pay attention to, and I'll try to engage Joyce on this, is what are the reasons that she has come to those conclusions? What reasons why I have been maybe more cautious in my predictions? And you can decide for yourself what makes more sense to you. But hopefully that can help you become a more educated consumer of legal news. Because a lot of times there's very explosive headlines and people, I, I get a lot of people asking me, well, why is not something happened yet? Right.
1: Of course. Like I said, people want to, well, they also want a sense of justice. And that's what's really hard for people is to see someone who's lying, getting away with all these things, seeing all these indictments of the people around him and yet nothing happening to the president.
0: Well, one thing that I'm going to in the future when I have some time, I, I seem to, I'm running myself very thin, is write more about how people get away with it. And there's, uh, it's not, there's a lot of thoughts I have on that. It's not limited to, you know President Trump or his associates it's, it's just it's a it, it's the, there are ways to do to get away with things in the legal system the legal system is not as good at uh, capturing people and punishing them as you might think
1: and I believe there's a, a question that kind of will reflect uh, that sense of what would you do to get away with it or to protect the people around you so we'll, <laughs> we'll be addressing that oh boy so you can share some of that at least briefly
0: Okay. Wow. Well, I think now would be a good time for break, for me to bring in Joyce Vance. Uh, all of you should know Joyce because she has been on this podcast a couple times before. I consider her a regular at this point. A uh, Joyce uh, is an MSNBC legal analyst. You, you see her almost every day, I think, on MSNBC. She is also the former United States attorney, presidentially appointed United States attorney un, under uh, President Obama for the United States District in Northern Alabama. So let me, uh, let me uh, call her now. <phone rings> Joyce, welcome back to the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me back.
0: So, I uh, you know, today we're going to spend a lot of our time I think you know answering so many questions from listeners that Patty has been collecting. Yeah, I know. I'm trying to I'm trying to just sort of parse through
1: these and find ones that aren't repetitive, but I mean people have so many great questions. Well,
0: good. And but before we do that, you know, I, one thing I thought would be helpful to do. We've been doing this podcast now for, you know, several months, four or five months at least, and um although time is flying. Um, and I will tell you, it's, it's like being on a treadmill. There's so much news to cover all the time. There have been so many weeks that have just had been packed with news. And I'm curious, what do you think over the last year or so? What do you think are the important takeaways? Uh, what do you think is going to matter when we look back at this year?
2: You know, I think you're right. It is like a treadmill with a lot of crazy exit ramps at unpredictable points in time, and you don't know if those exit ramps go someplace interesting or if they're just a place that you're better off forgetting about. Um, it's hard to keep track of everything that happened. But when I think about 2018, I think the, the big point that we'll take away is that it was like the first act of a two-act play, at least a two-act play. And the act in 2018 was about what happened in Russia There were social media trolls in Russia. There were hackers in Russia. We learned a lot because Bob Mueller gave us a lot of detail in his indictments about what went on in Russia to try to influence the U.S. presidential election in 2016. And then there's sort of a cliffhanger because we get a little bit of a hint that there were some Americans that were involved. We don't know if they were participants in the Trump campaign or not, We don't know what, if anything, then candidate, now President Trump, knew. But we do have an inkling that Act Two will be about American involvement in that effort to influence the campaign, to exert illegal influence during the campaign. So that's what I expect to see coming in 2019.
0: So I think that's really interesting. There's no question in my mind that, you know, one of the things that I think was very important and was not covered well uh, by the by, the press, and I think the press has generally done an amazing job uh, covering a, a presidency that has overworked them, I'd say, by giving them so much news to cover. But is the, for example, the indictments of Russian uh, intelligence operatives uh, engaging in uh, subterfuge within the United States? Uh, you know, I, I think part of that, I was talking to a journalist about that, and and that person explained to me, That when there's something that just happens in a courtroom, when a person is brought there and charged with a crime or found guilty or something like that, there's an event for them to cover. But when there's these indictments of a lot of Russian people that no one knows, that you can't really put a face to. They're, it's it's harder for them to to explain to tell a story about that or explain that in in the news. And I think that I thought that was interesting to me because to me the most important indictment may have been the indictment of all of these uh, Russian intelligence operatives for you know hacking servers and doing a whole bunch of different things in the United States.
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. When we think about the justice system, you know, as private citizens, we're keyed into these events like indictment, but much more importantly trial, guilty plea sentencing. And because Mueller doesn't have jurisdiction over these foreign nationals in Russia, we haven't seen any of those events that Follow the indictment. There's a little bit of a fury going on in the District of Columbia over this sealed secret case, which appears to possibly involve a Russian company or a foreign company that's somehow related to the Mueller investigation. But absent that situation, which has frankly garnered a lot of attention for exactly the reason you identify, we haven't been able to follow along with the story of the Russian indictments because nothing new has happened, at least nothing that's publicly visible.
0: Yeah, I think that, um, you know, it'll be really interesting to see what, com- what happens in the year to come. I think it's very safe to say that Roger Stone is uh, in a bad situation. It appears that an indictment of him is likely. Uh, Jerome Corsi uh, appears like he is going to be indicted as well if his own word can be believed, uh, although he is, you know, he's actively, I'd say, spreading disinformation. I've I, I follow him on Twitter just so I can see what he's up to, and he's just constantly spreading all sorts of very bizarre theories about a whole variety of things. Um, but what's unclear to me, and you, I think, may have a different view, is it's unclear to me beyond that what will come of what I'll call the sort of the Russian piece of all of this. Uh, to me, if I was, you know, based upon where I sit and, and to be clear, we have a very limited v- viewpoint. In other words, you know, obviously Mueller knows all sorts of things that none of us know. He's He you know, has interviewed all these witnesses and gathered documents and so forth. Uh, but but even the President's lawyers, they've interviewed their client, they've interviewed other employees of the White House for and spoken to lawyers, for other associates. So they, they and they've read a lot of documents that they've produced. so they they know a lot more than the public knows. But from where I sit, I would be, if I was on the Trump side, the most worried about what was going on in the Southern District of New York because they seem so far along. They've already, you know, indicted someone, convicted him. They, you know, they felt confident enough to say in sentencing papers that they that the president is implicated in that. That strikes me as very far along. Whereas this other stuff, we just don't know. I'm curious what your take is on that
2: it's really not all that different from yours i think if if you're really the president the president's people sitting in the white house um you have to be concerned about this entire attack that's now coming from three sides at least right you've got Mueller who's sort of running silent and running deep it's hard to know what exactly he's doing the southern district of new york though has been very public about where they're going so public that it apparently even provoked the president to complain to his acting attorney general that prosecutors in the Southern District had gone rogue, and they had officially named him as a participant in Cohen's criminal conduct. So that drew his ire. And then there's also the attorney general for the state of New York, who's looking at the uh, foundation, probably looking at Trump Org. And so there's this sort of triple threat that Trump faces as he enters the new year.
1: I want to uh, put in one of the questions from uh, our our listeners uh, because it reflects the uh, Southern District of New York. Do you think there's any chance SDNY tries to subpoena President Trump to testify in front of the grand jury in their campaign finance case, perhaps for a testimony regarding executive two?
2: So, you know, we talk a lot about this notion that the department divides people who sort of show up in investigations into three categories. You can be a witness, You can be a subject, you can be a target. A target is somebody who is likely to be indicted. subject is someone who's interesting and, and might ultimately end up being a target but isn't yet. And longstanding department policy says that you should not subpoena targets to appear in front of the grand jury absent really unique circumstances, they're the only person who can give you something and you have reason to believe that it's, it's worthwhile to do it. But it's really very narrow. Prosecutors don't do it a lot. So just for that boring sort of process reason, it's unlikely that the president would be subpoenaed. But there's, there's a catch, right? Because he's the president and because we know the department has a longstanding policy against inviting presidents, maybe he's only a subject. And there is no restriction on subpoenaing a a subject to appear in front of the grand jury. You have to advise them of their rights. They certainly have the opportunity to assert the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. But the only real barrier to subpoenaing the president would be that someone, presumably the acting U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York on this case, would have to seek permission from Rod Rosenstein and ultimately from acting attorney General Whitaker. And so we have that same open question we would have in the Mueller investigation. Would they get permission? I don't think that they can just step out and do it on their own.
0: Uh, I've got to say that. That is one of the most interesting questions uh, that I that we have ever received from a listener. So kudos to whoever that was who asked that question. If you want to call them out,
1: <laughs> I will try to find them. I'll, okay. I'll go through. It a great, it a great but... question,
0: and I will just say, uh, for, um, for my side of this, I think I don't see why you wouldn't subpoena Trump. And and here's and maybe my experience in terms of determining subjects and targets is a little different. I mean, in my experience. Uh, you know, I I wouldn't and and it, I wouldn't make a designation that someone was a target until I felt very certain that they were going to be indicted, and particularly in white collar type cases where intent was always an issue. It, it often wasn't until right as you were starting to draw up your draft indictment and prepare what 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 we call the pros memo or prosecution memo detailing the evidence that I would really have a good sense of you know, did I have everything and was I ready to go? It wouldn't be until maybe shortly before that. And so I, you know, typically I would have people in kind of what I call subject status or to use the, the categories that, that you laid out, Joyce, which are obviously the department uses until very late in the game. And if a defense attorney asked me, is my client a subject or target? I would say subject until pretty late in the game. And so I, my gut would be that, that Trump would be a subject at this point, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't see any reason why they, why they might not want to subpoena.
1: And that's from a digitalist who has actually had several great questions over the last few weeks.
0: Yes. And one of them was smart observers who, by the way, you know, had some conversations with me on Twitter about executive two in the charging document and I think influenced the political magazine piece that I wrote on that subject. So kudos to him. Um Wow, okay, so let, let me uh, uh, let me let's talk a bit about the news of today, Joyce, because we're recording this shortly after McClatchy reported that um, Michael Cohen's phone hit off of a cell tower it was connecting or used a cell tower in the vicinity of Prague in I think late summer of 2016. What do you make of that?
2: So first off, I think we have to be careful about this story. Um, the reporting indicates that four individuals have said that that this cell tower data exists. We don't know anything about those four people. We don't know how authoritative this story is. And as recently as, what, the last week or two, right, Lanny Davis, who's now Michael Cohen's, I guess, former attorney advisor, has been out in public denying that Cohen ever visited Prague. Um, So there's that. But if it's, And if it's true on the particular timeline that's suggested in the Steele dossier, which you'll remember um, had this prolonged sort of thread that ran through it, talking about Cohen visiting Prague to meet directly with Russians after Manafort uh, left the campaign. If that can be established, Mueller would certainly not take Cohen at, at his face value, given Cohen's reputation. So he would need some sort of corroborative evidence to back up Cohen bell tower data would be pretty good. Travel documents would be pretty good. And if it turns out that Cohen was meeting with Russians, connected with the government effort to influence the election, then the, you know, backbone of Trump's um, claims all along that the Mueller investigation is a witch hunt, his claim that there was no collusion, that's going to be difficult to maintain. And we could be in a whole new era for this investigation.
0: You know, I I think that's I think that's all right, uh, Joyce. That makes a lot of sense to me. One thing listeners will, will probably have gotten used to by now is that when I have guests like you, uh, or Mimi, or or Asher, some some of our 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 regular guests, we're often agreeing more than we disagree, and that's because I think we view things, uh, you know, through the same lens as former prosecutors and former investigators. Uh, I I will say you know I used to use uh, uh, what's called cell site data, which is what this is a lot. And just so everyone understands the limitations on the technology, the historical cell site data um, tells is a record that's kept by by cell phone providers that indicates what cell tower that your phone connected to when you made a call. So it doesn't tra- it doesn't tell them where you were in between calls. It doesn't precisely. Uh, reveal your location, but it, it gives a, a sense of the vicinity that you're in because it'll have the cell tower and the orientation. So usually um, th- there's a lot, I use this this evidence in investigations and at trials and there's a lot, and I help train FBI agents uh, who were, who were uh, beca- experts or became experts at using this information. Uh, and, you know, th- the, it's often a very important investigative tool. Here, I think, as you point out, Joyce, to me, the value is a corroborating testimony or potential testimony from Michael Cohen, because Cohen obviously uh, is a witness who juries would have a lot of questions about. Uh, given that he's convicted of lie of of uh, lying to Congress, convicted of uh, fraud, so uh, you know he's somebody who would be called into question. So anything that prosecutors could do to back up his testimony with something hard would be helpful. And of course, this is you know core to a, a very ex- sort of explosive uh, allegation in the Steele dossier, which is that. Cohen went to Prague to meet with Russians regarding coordination with, um, with, uh, with them, you know, in interference with the election. Now, one thing though, I want to say, and I, you can tell me, I would be interested if you disagree, Joyce, is that you, know, you, I think you're right that it would have a huge public relations change, you know, and it it would certainly undercut Trump's arguments about this being a witch hunt, but I don't know legally how significant it would be unless. There's, you know, very specific, you know, intent that could be proven regarding, um, you know, agreeing to join a conspiracy or something of that of that nature.
2: Well, I think you're right. The devil is in the details, right? This would be an important development for investigators because both Cohen and Trump have protested so loudly and so publicly all along that it's untrue that Cohen ever went to Prague. The fact that they were trying so hard to conceal it would suggest, if it turns out to be true, that there was really some, some real fire hiding behind all of that smoke. But investigators and prosecutors would still have to put through a case proving all the technical elements of a conspiracy. Um, you know, it could turn out that it was something innocuous, but I think it would be unlikely just given all the drama that surrounded this story.
0: Well, you know, what, I, what I'm what i prepared for as a possibility, I have no idea exactly what's going to happen, but you could imagine as a possibility, Joyce, a meeting that is totally nefarious that most Americans would be shocked to hear about, but maybe doesn't meet every technical element of something. I mean, you could imagine a meeting where the president's personal lawyer is sent to make promises about what the president might do uh, to help Russia in the future and say that they— would welcome something, but it's it maybe there's not enough evidence or it doesn't quite, you know, meet, uh, you know, meet whatever standard Mueller might think is necessary to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And it could leave us in a very interesting uh, and, and hotly contested situation.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, again, I'm going to have to agree with you. It could turn out that this was a, a meeting if it turns out to have actually taken place that was something that we would categorize as lawful, you know, but awful, right? Or maybe I should say here, awful, but lawful, where the conduct is reprehensible, but doesn't technically violate the law. Or it could just be that Mueller can't get enough proof that everybody believes that a crime took place, but you don't have sufficient proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a situation that prosecutors find themselves in from time to time. And if that happens, if we're left in this situation, then the entire controversy gets thrown over to precisely the place the founders intended. It gets thrown over to the Senate for the Senate to decide whether or not it's impeachable conduct.
1: Um, In that vein of uh, awful but lawful, uh, one of our listeners asked, so with all the Russian manipulation in U.S. elections, if Americans had done the same things with all the proper filings, licenses or whatever, would that have been legal? So,
2: Interesting question, which has actually surfaced in Alabama today. Um, The details are still developing, but apparently in the special Senate election, in Alabama between Doug Jones, who's now our sitting senator, and a candidate named Roy Moore, who was a uh, former uh, state Supreme Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court. There is now a story that there was some sort of an effort at, at social media manipulation during that campaign. And the state's attorney general has just opened an investigation into whether or not that conduct was illegal. American citizens doing very much supposedly what Russia did during um, our presidential election, so we'll have an opportunity maybe to follow this in real time and see where it goes. But much of the illegality, at least as I've always understood what Mueller is looking at here, centers on the notion that you have Russians, that you have foreigners making a contribution to a campaign, which is illegal, and then perhaps there are computer crimes involved in hacking or distribution of stolen materials. I don't know.
0: What do you think, Renata? Yeah, I, I. What I would say, and I think you, you. Towards the end, you were saying. I think where, where, where I would have gone with it, which is, there are certain crimes that would be that the, the the fact that they're foreigners, um, makes makes it is what makes it a crime. Like Joyce mentioned a moment ago, if you make a contribution into to a U.S. election and you're a foreigner, that's. That's against the law. It's not against the law if you're an American. Obviously, Americans make contributions to U.S. elections all the time. Similarly, if you're acting as an agent of a foreign government and not telling the Attorney General that you're doing that in advance, um, you know th- that's a problem if you're an American. Um, you know, it, and I think it, that's also a problem if you're a foreigner. Um, but you know, there there are certain times where the foreign status matters. But for a lot of this stuff. You know, and that's part of what I've been trying to focus on with, when, with, with all of you, whether it's in Twitter or when I've written op-eds or uh, on the podcast, is that a lot of this is just straight-up criminal, you know, that we, what we're looking at is straight-up criminal activity like hacking. You mentioned, Joyce, hacking a server. You know, people are prosecuted for that no matter where you live, no matter who you are. The hard part is proving that somebody was part of that, and that can be... Um, a challenge when you're dealing with sophisticated people who are trying to hide their tracks. So, so Joyce, uh, you know, I'm uh, you know, one thing I'm curious about is on the Southern District side of things, what do you think? We should be we could be looking for in the future. I think listeners know what my thoughts are on that, but I'd be interested in yours
2: Well, I think it's an interesting question of, of what the scope of that investigation is what exactly they're looking at You know, we know that they're looking at Cohen. We know that they're looking at campaign finance violations Are they looking at anything beyond that? Are they looking into other transactions that the Trump organization conducted? All of that, I think, is in this universe of um, uh, sort of known unknowns. And I'm also curious about whether there's a connection between what's going on with the New York AG, looking at the Trump Foundation and perhaps other things, and the Southern District of New York, because the New York AG doesn't have direct criminal uh, jurisdiction to look, for instance, at the tax violations. So we understand that they've referred those to the tax division at Maine Justice. Whether or not any of that lands back in the Southern District of New York and gets worked up there, I think is also a very interesting question. You know, this is an aggressive um, U.S. attorney's office full of uh, very strong, career-minded people. They chew at these situations like a dog worries a bone. They don't let go of criminal conduct. They look at situations until they understand what went on. um, They will not indict, you know, if there's not a crime. But if there's a crime, I don't think that they'll let go of it. It doesn't matter who it is. They're going to proceed without fear or favor.
0: I I think that's right. The Southern District of New York has a very uh, storied and and aggressive uh, reputation for being aggressive and being uh, strong prosecutors, particularly in white collar crimes. You know, when I when I um, was a prosecutor in Chicago uh, for many years, doing that sort of work, they were in very, many ways the office that I was looking to as a peer office. And at times, we were trying to figure out between the two of us who was going to handle a case because they always, every time there was a particular a potential uh, indictment to be brought or potential criminal activity, they were always, uh, you know, right on top of it. And I think so. I you know, it'll be interesting. You know, you mentioned the tax division. One thing listeners may not know is that. Uh, the tax division of the Justice Department in d c has to approve of every tax prosecution in the United States. Uh, that's something that's sort of long standing, uh, a, a longstanding rule. And you know, part of I th- you know it kind of leads to a kind of a broader issue. and this is something i've we've discussed in the podcast with uh, you know I've discussed with others with asha and with uh, matt miller and and so forth is, you know what? What do we think now that we know Whitaker has not recused? Um, you know, and that now he is going to be briefed on everything that's going on. What? Uh, you know, do do we think? Do you think? You know, he will be interfering in this, uh, in, in that decision, and others. And you know, how optimistic or pessimistic are you about the ability of these investigations to continue unimpeded? So
2: it's a really interesting um, point here. That at least the public reporting we've seen, the CNN stories that talk about Whitaker and recusal have talked about the Mueller investigation. And I don't know if he sought or received separate advice about whether he needed to recuse from, for instance, the Southern District of New York cases or even any of the stuff that Jesse Liu has going in the District of Columbia, the U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia involving uh, Maria Butina and the NRA. So there's this sort of universe of cases, right? All that we know for certain is that Whitaker is not recused from the Mueller investigation. Presumably that means he's not recused from anything or we would know about it. Um, That seems to me to be very shocking, the idea that an attorney general would Fail to follow the advice of ethics professionals in the Justice Department is, I just have to say, something that would give anyone who's ever worked in the Department of Justice great pause. The whole point of recusal is that you err on the side of caution, because what you don't want to do is give any appearance of impropriety in how these cases are handled, because if they're handled improperly, for instance, with favoritism towards a sitting president, then it makes it really difficult for people to trust the Justice Department and to have faith that the work that's being done is consistent with the principles of of the rule of law, which say everybody gets treated equally. Justice is the same for every person. It doesn't matter how wealthy or powerful you are. So there's that entire issue with Whitaker being involved in these cases. Even with saying that, in a normal time, I would think that, you know, the gravitational pull that DOJ sort of exerts on on its prosecutors over norms and behaviors would keep uh, Whitaker from interfering. But in this day and age, not so certain.
0: Yeah, I also, you know, I got to say, Joyce, it's worth remembering that, you know, several days ago, before the holidays, there was news that CNN reported about. Trump having conversations with Whitaker about the Southern District of New York investigation, asking him to control the prosecutors there. And that is faded from memory, right? That seems like eons ago. No one's talking about it anymore. That is just straight up corrupt. And and it's it blows my mind that things like that, or when, you know, when Trump a while ago tweeted, you know, back when Sessions was attorney general, that he should quash those uh, prosecutions of Republican congressmen, that that sort of thing doesn't generate more lasting impact for the Trump administration.
2: You know, it's stunning. And I actually have an op-ed that's about to come out that sort of makes that point that we can't lose sight of these stories. It's sort of like, Jim Comey said that when Trump made the comment to him, you know, can't you just let go of Mike Flynn? He's a good guy. Comey understood that that was an order. It wasn't chit chat among colleagues. It was an order from the president to the head of the FBI. There's no reason to believe that, you know, Whitaker, who campaigned to get this job, um, is any less sophisticated when it comes to understand the president giving him an order. And the president has taking this story at face value told him to rein in rogue prosecutors in the Southern District of New York. I think that might be a challenge that Whitaker will be unable to you know, to fulfill that uh, command. Nonetheless, we should never be numb to this idea that the president of the United States is trying to use the attorney general and the Justice Department to take pressure off of him in cases where he may arguably have been involved in criminal conduct. That, to me, is is the shocker. And really, if we want an end note for 2018, it's exactly that, that the president is trying to subvert the Justice Department to protect himself, his family and his friends.
1: Because so many people are worried that uh, that Trump will... uh, Ask Whitaker or force him to, and, and as you said, he might not uh, carry out his orders. But people are worried that Whitaker might shut down the Mueller probe. Can uh, can it s- subsequently be subpoenaed by the Dems in Congress, and would it have the same effect? You mean can Mueller be subpoenaed? Uh, well, I guess, yeah, can, can yeah can the Dems subpoena the investigation?
2: Yeah, you know they can probably get some parts of it right. There's sort of a sticky issue with grand jury material that's protectable in in some settings. Um, But Probably if the Democrats in Congress wanted to run a parallel investigation, if the Mueller investigation was terminated, they could be very successful in finding sourcing. Um, I I think that there might be some folks inside of the Justice Department who would want to quit their jobs and go over and be on House investigative staff in that eventuality. Uh, so it's certainly entirely possible that they could put it together. But again, we have this issue. You know, there are 53 Republicans in the Senate come January. Would they vote to convict if impeachment proceedings were brought?
0: Yeah. And, so you know, and also uh, on that score, it's also worth noting that the Justice Department has guidance in what's now called the Justice Manual that uh, that, you know, sets forth how the DOJ would share, can share even grand jury material, mm-hmm. which, Um, Joyce uh, mentioned a moment ago, uh, which is essentially material that's connected, collected through grand jury subpoenas and, and, and grand jury testimony that, you know, share that that can be shared with with state and local prosecutors who if there's evidence of a state or local crime. It'd be interesting to see if, you know, those efforts potentially ratcheting up if, you know, something was happened to interfere with the investigation or there was widespread belief that it had. Yeah, you know, I will say just too, you know, to, to go off of what you said a moment ago, Joyce, and, and I'm looking forward to reading your op-ed uh, on this subject. Um, you know, one thing that um, that that constantly bothers me, concerns me, is the fact that we're seeing what appears to be crimes right in plain view, and there's a lot of focus on, well, will Mueller prove X, Y, Z that we're not sure about yet. And people don't necessarily spend enough time with the, the crimes that we see in front of us. I mean, obstruction of justice, based upon what we've seen publicly, I, I feel pretty confident that I could put a case together and prove that in a courtroom. That's And that's really one of the only things that I could say that about. The campaign finance case, I mean, we've, we've looked at that in detail in this podcast with some great guests, that looks you know pretty strong based on where it is so far. You know, it seems to me that sometimes— there isn't enough focus on the crimes we know about. And I worry that Trump being um, obstructionist, Trump being corrupt um, is sort of baked into people's view of him now. And there, we we have come to expect him as a president to be undermining this investigation when that is beneath the standards of what we should expect from a president of the United States.
2: You know, people have become so numb to his conduct and it's, in some cases it's just amazing to me folks who i would have you know uh, sworn would go to their grave being strong law enforcement law and order kind of people who would have expected nothing other than uh, the highest ethical conduct from their leaders are now willing to write it off as, well, that's just Trump. That's just what Trump does. I think that that's abominable and we'll have a lot of work to do at the end of this administration to rebuild expectations for how our leaders should behave unless we want to live um, in a banana republic, because Trump has clearly engaged in obstruction in front of the American people. He even told us that that was how he operated. You know, that infamous conduct, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue without uh, losing any of my supporters. He believes that he can get away with it.
1: And so many people who support him have told me that it's worth it, that everything, his policies, the economy, that uh, the, his manner, his behavior is worth it, which is, I, I, is so, I, I, it's hard for me to talk to folks like that.
2: Well, but, you know, I, I, I try to get into that. skin. I mean, I, I live in the Deep South. It's, it's Trump country. Um, and I have this, you know, ongoing conversation with many of my friends who believe it was so important to get conservative judges on the federal bench and maybe a tax cut that they're willing to accept um, whatever the downside is. And, and I could not agree with you more. That's a really difficult mindset for me to understand. I just don't see it that way.
0: Yeah, I, you know, so I, I will say, too, just obviously coming off of the holidays and spending a lot of time with, with relatives, you know, one thing that certainly appears from what I can tell to have worked is the disinformation campaign that has been run. I mean, it is it was amazing to me to hear people quoting with approval what, you know, whatever they believed WikiLeaks said or what, you know, all sorts of conspiracy theories that they heard you know, clearly uh, the efforts that have been made not only by the Russians, but by many here in the United States to deceive uh, the public, I think, have had uh, a regrettable impact. And it's, it's, it makes it so it's harder for all of us to have a conversation, um, I think, uh, it, because we're not dealing off the same group of facts.
2: Yeah, that's the frightening thing, right? We should be arguing about what the facts mean, not about what the facts are. And that is, I guess, if Trump has a genius, that's his genius, convincing people that something that's red is, in fact, blue, and getting that them to stand by that erroneous conclusion and him so that we can no longer have a conversation about, you know, for instance, what should our immigration policy look like, because we're back a couple thousand miles talking about Mexico sending rapists into this country, which just isn't true.
0: You know, one thing that I think would be you know, interesting to talk a little bit about, Joyce, is A potential obstruction of justice case. I think that whenever the Mueller investigation does reach some sort of uh, ending point, we are going to hear something about Donald Trump and obstruction of justice. I think that there's no question about that Um, at this point, not only just given for what we've all seen publicly, but also just the reporting regarding the questions being asked of, of Trump and so on. Uh, and documents that were sought re- that appear to be ve- closely related to obstruction of justice. You know, it appears to me that the evidence of obstruction of justice is overwhelming, but that th- Trump may have various le- what I'll call legal defenses to obstruction. In other words, that there wasn't technically speaking a proceeding for purposes of the statutes or these various arguments that we've heard most recently from a- a attorney general, soon to be attorney general appointee Barr uh, making various arguments that the president uh, can obstruct justice if he's just firing people or or doing other things that are ordinarily within presidential duties. Yeah, I'm curious what your thoughts are on how that may play out.
2: So it's as you know from your white collar experience. Any time you indict these kind of cases, these defendants lawyer up with really good, sophisticated lawyers, and they raise not the sort of defenses that I would think of as factual defenses. I didn't do it. I wasn't there. It was someone else. Instead, they raise technical legal defenses. And so you, you point to the first one. It's only obstruction if there was an ongoing, some sort of an investigative or legal qualifying proceeding at that point in time. Maybe um, as a technical legal manner, not an FBI investigation. We're not absolutely certain about that. So there are these very specific, narrow, not all that interesting legal issues And the way that those get decided in a normal case is probably pre-trial motions. There's an indictment. The defense lawyers file a bunch of different sorts of motions to keep the case from happening for technical legal reasons. A judge rules. Maybe they go up on appeal before the case. Usually they would go up after it was concluded. But there's this sort of long, drawn-out legal determination. Here it's really hard to know know what happens. It again seems still very unlikely to me that Trump gets indicted. So perhaps this all gets thrown over into the political arena where these technical legal issues matter a lot less because Congress is free to make its own determination about what a high crime and and misdemeanor that's sufficient for impeachment is. But there is, as you say, a real tangle of technical legal issues that underlies the president's conduct and whether or not it's
0: obstruction of justice. One thing I think is Sort of uh, a funny, uh, a fun, a funny thing about the obstruction case is that if you were in an actual court of law, I think the best arguments the defense have would be these technical legal points. This it's sort of what a lot of people w- you who are listening to this might regard as technicalities about whether it's proceeding or the president's power or whatever. That are not very—they're not compelling. I think wouldn't be compelling to a jury and don't shouldn't won't really matter on the political side of things. But those would be the best arguments because on the face of it, the activity is so plainly uh, obstructionist and so plainly I think evinces a corrupt intent. Whereas in Congress, I think what will happen because I don't think the Senate could potentially ever uh, would never say, "Look, the, yeah, it looks like the president obstructed justice, but technically." There wasn't an official proceeding or there's technically some argument about presidential power. What I think... What happened in the Senate was, it was we'll have potentially Republican senators twisting themselves in knots trying to explain how uh, statements that appear plain, to be plainly corrupt are not, in fact, corrupt, which is the sort of thing I think would be a loser in any kind of courtroom.
2: Yeah, there are going to be a lot of people holding their fingers up to see which way the wind is blowing and deciding whether they can survive uh, re-election in 2020 better if they vote for or against, right, assuming that the House draws up articles of impeachment.
0: Yeah. One thing I will say, and I and, you know, a lot a lot of a lot of our listeners have were asking because I had looked through a lot of the questions myself before we came here was, you know, will, will will Trump survive and when when will things come and et cetera. And one thing that I think that Nancy Pelosi has talked about a lot is coming in as Speaker of the House is. You know, in her mind, I think she views that the Democrats have one chance to try something with impeachment, and they need to wait until all the facts are in and make a determination at that point. And I I think that's a very wise thing for a lot of reasons. But one thing is, you know, look, in this country, there was an election. A man was elected. You know, many of I didn't vote for him. I suspect most of our listeners did not. But. Um, that happened. And like anyone else, we, you know, before there is any sort of legal process that begins, whether it's impeachment or indictment or anything else, there needs to be a full investigation. The facts need to come out and we need to determine what the facts uh, ultimately prove. And I think it's uh, savvy and also the right thing to do for uh, uh, soon to be Speaker Pelosi and the other Democrats to wait before they uh, take any sort of drastic step.
2: You know, I don't know if they used to say this in your old office in Chicago, but in my old office uh, in Birmingham, there was a saying, if you're going to take a shot at the king, you'd better be sure you're going to kill him, which is to say that if you're going to go after a, a Defendant at the top of a white-collar crime ring or a drug ring, you got to be sure that you can take him out. Don't do it prematurely. So I think soon-to-be Speaker Pelosi is dead on the money here. You only get one shot at impeachment. You just can't keep coming back and coming back. It makes sense to wait until Mueller has finished his work. And you get as much information from Mueller as you can. There are other lines of investigation that some of the other leaders in the House who will you know take over as chair people of their committee uh, when the Democratic House convenes on January third. those folks have lines of investigation to pursue. I think it'll be interesting to see, for instance, the financial investigation techniques that they use. You want to wait until you have all of that. And then you can make a decision about whether or not the evidence truly warrants impeachment of a president, which is not, not something that you do casually. It has to be serious and thoughtful and deliberate, and people should study the evidence and really take a step back and think about whether or not this is the right thing to do for the country. So I understand the emotion and the, the anger over many of Trump's policies. I like soon-to-be Speaker Pelosi's very thoughtful, deliberate approach.
0: Yeah. You know, one thing that I hear from a lot of folks is they're like, well, you know, come on already. It's obvious that this happened or that happened or whatever. And, you know, one thing that I would caution folks, and, and I know that you, I think, have a similar perspective, Joyce, is, you know, prosecutors very rarely go into situations where they roll the dice. I mean, there are occasional situations where. Um, you know, there's a a tremendous harm that's happening. Someone is, you know, there are times when I used to investigate kidnappings in progress or you you would have to make split second decisions, you know, without all of the facts available to you. But particularly when you're investigating past conduct, prosecutors are deliberative. They're careful. They know there's a high burden, usually that, you know, there's not this impeachment issue. It's proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt to 12 random people off the street who otherwise wouldn't agree on much anything. Um, So that's a high, high burden. Prosecutors usually are careful and deliberative and thoughtful about what they do. And so. I think what we what we've seen, you know, from Mueller and from other the other prosecutors that are investigating here is a careful, deliberative, thoughtful approach. And when people ask me, Well, are you surprised how long the Mueller investigation has taken? I say not at all. In fact, to me it's happened much faster than I expected it to.
2: It, that- so true. I mean I've seen, you know, investigations into mayors that have taken more time than Mueller's taken to indict, what, thirty-three people now, including folks in in foreign countries. He's moved really quickly. It's important to get it right. It's even more important for Congress to wait until it has all of the information that's available to make its decisions. We live in this sort of law and order society where we think that the investigation and the prosecution can both happen in one hour, but that's just not realistic. And I know it's so hard for people who are frustrated and ready for action when we tell them, you know, we're going to need to wait patiently until all of the evidence is. But if there's one important um, concept that we as former prosecutors can relay to people, it is how important it is to do this right instead of just doing it fast.
1: I I want to bring something up because you're talking about patience. And, uh, of course, a lot of folks who listen to this podcast do want to see results. But I think there's an interesting question that uh, one of our listeners uh, posted um, in regards to, you know, this is about the the significant impact this administration has on our democracy. And this listener says, I was taught that democracy is an ever-evolving concept as laid out by our founders. What constitutional changes do you see would be advisable following this administration to realign our checks and balances between the three branches of government. Wow. I know. I know. I, the, I know. I know. I it's a it's a heavy one, no, but That's it's huge,
0: and I know there are uh, there are some people who are tackling this. I know, Preet Bharara and Christine Todd Whitman are working together on some sort of project related to something like this. I guess I would say you know a couple of things that come to mind for me, and and I'm sure Joyce will have even smarter thoughts. Uh, but a couple a couple of things that come to mind uh, on my end, uh, w- one would be. That we originally, I think there was a sense after the the Starr investigation that we needed to have a special counsel who wasn't completely insulated uh, from the from the uh, from the political process, and I think uh, what we've seen happening with Trump and his his um, uh, attempts to undermine the Mueller investigation and other investigations seems to me like we need to codify and and have laws that do a better job of of creating a distance and protecting investigations when there's evidence that associates or friends of the president uh or the president him or herself uh, were involved were are under criminal investigation and, and I think more generally um, I think we need to have more laws that uh, regarding transparency and requiring transparency one of the things that that you know concerns me the most is it seems to me like we're going in the opposite direction there in an era where it's cheaper than ever to to publish information and spread information we we have a presidency that is revealing less and less about actually what's happening in this country
2: you know, I think that those are both um, really great points and, and absolutely true. The idea of constitutional amendments itself makes me a little bit nervous, but I think that there are some legal steps that we'll have to take, um, and some of that involves. We've always had a shared set of assumptions. I say we folks in the Justice Department about ethical operation and and how you know the department does things, what its processes look like more of those are going to need to be put into writing, perhaps even codified as a matter of federal law. And key among them will be uh, the notion of the independence of the Justice Department when it comes to individual criminal investigations and an effort by a president to interfere in them, so that's one thing. And then there's also this area of emoluments and ethics violation by cabinet-level officials and folks in the in the president's White House. That Norm Eisen and the, his uh, folks at at Crew and Walt Schaub have done such a brilliant job of getting information through FOIA requests. And litigating over. And we will need to go back and refine and update those laws um, so that they prevent this sort of conduct from occurring again. And then the last thing that I'll say is generally this country, you know, not due to Trump, but certainly this will inform the process we need to rethink and we need to sort of have a, a moonshot developing laws to deal with uh, advances in the cyber arena, whether that's criminal conduct in cyber, how cyber is used in elections, just this entire notion of who has responsibility for developing rules that govern how Facebook and the other net giants work and what those rules are going to look like. That'll be a really critical outgrowth as, as we move forward.
0: Yeah, and I, I think we also uh, need to do a lot of work on protecting Protecting our electoral systems from attack. I mean, there's been some efforts on that, but they've been, I would say, not sufficient. Um, you know, one question that uh, one of our listeners had that I think is was a really interesting one is what what how would our lives have been different? You, <laughs> that was going to be you're going to ask that one. I'm like, know. if you're yeah, not, yeah. I'm going to ask it because was so interesting. <laughs> well, how would how would your life be different, uh, Joyce, if Donald Trump had not been elected president? I imagine you wouldn't be on MSNBC every night.
2: Well, that's true. You know, as my husband likes to point out, I'd be someplace in private practice making a whole lot of money. Um, but, you know, there are so many horrible things that we've done as a country. I remember when the Access Hollywood tape was released before the election, and I had a then. 14 year old son, who we had to sit down and talk with about what some of the language we all heard the president use on tape meant and why it was wrong. It seems like there's just been this entire list of social horribles that this president has brought back into the mainstream. And so, as a parent, you have to constantly be on guard against it. You know, whoever thought that we would have to tell our kids in 2018 that Nazis were bad people? I so strongly resent this sort of behavior that he's normalized. And I I hope our country can get back on track Um, and that, you know, the country that elected Barack Obama, the the country that, you know, believed in Ronald Reagan's vision of the shining city on a hill, that we can restore that sort of an image of who we are. But it's going to be heavy lifting.
0: Well, there's no question about that as a country. And, uh, you know, on my end, in terms of how my life would be different, you know, I will say. When I left the uh, U.S. Attorney's office in mid 2016, this was right bef- a little few months before the election. I-, I was planning to build my own practice, and I had I had of was really focused a lot on building, you know, uh, you know, uh, building a practice and and doing a lot of work for my clients. I did certainly do everything I could to get involved in the election, and I also was involved in various causes, the environment, and others. Um, but it was not it was not an, a huge. The huge uh, uh, segment of my time that it is now, whereas now I literally spend so much of my time writing and thinking and talking about legal issues, uh, frankly, in a way that I think you know very few lawyers in private practice, uh, who, uh, certainly at a larger law firm like I am, are willing to do. I'm very fortunate my law firm has allowed me to do that. But it does have consequences, I think. Um, I think uh, you know there. Are, you know it's certainly the safer thing for for whether it's for potential clients or for uh, any future job you may ever want to have is to say as little as possible. Uh, but it's a hard, I think this is a hard time to be quiet. At least for me, you know. This is a, you know there was a, a earlier today there was. Uh, there are some t- tweets about Paul Ryan and how he'll be remembered and what his legacy will be. And I think it's it's clear to me that he was somebody who had the power to do something about the, a lot of the things that Trump has done in this country, and he failed to do so. Uh, and, you know, he did, he has the level of power and responsibility that neither of us do. But I feel like given everything that's happening in this country Uh, anything that I could do, uh, to make the country a little bit better to help the public in any way, this is the time to do it.
1: And for me, by the way, uh, I would be less disappointed in people that I previously thought had good intentions. (laughs) There are a lot of people who are on Facebook or in my life who I'm just like, really, this is, this all seems worth it to you. I'm, uh, I think I would be less perplexed by the nature of, uh, what they think democracy is. It's just bizarre. Um, I also, uh, but I do want to say this. I think that one of the things I told my son, and I don't know if you had this experience, Joyce, is that the day that Trump won, I told my son, I think that there will be good things that come from this. And, and the idea that you do want to strive and, and are now you know motivated to participate in ways that perhaps you didn't before, there are some positives there as, as, as you know, obviously deeply negative things have uh, occurred and, and tragedies in, in many instances. We just learned about two children in the last few weeks, just in the last couple of days that have uh, died uh trying to come to this country finding a better life uh, i think that there i think some people I, I hate using the word are woke but i'm hoping that they stay involved and invested in our country
2: right if, if there's any silver lining to you know what we're living through right now it's that i think people won't take um, our form of government for granted. People will be more thoughtful and deliberate about protecting democracy. I hope that we'll see increased voter participation. Um, but I'll tell you, although I sometimes think that that will happen, I think the, the statistics about the number of 18 to 25-year-olds who stayed home from the polls is distressing. Um, I think that there are a lot of people who find it difficult or just not interesting to keep up with what's going on in the Trump administration, and who stick their heads in the sand. I think if the country is going to be in like you, I hate the term woke, but I'll use it here. If we're going to be fully woke, everyone is going to have to participate. And I just don't think that we're there yet.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. And one thing that I've tried to you know, tell everyone, certainly I've told all, all the folks who tra- follow me on Twitter, I've been saying it for, what is it, a year and a half or more now. Um, that you should not sit and wait wait in your, you know, sit in your living rooms and wait for Bob Mueller to save America. You need to get off your butts and save it yourselves. Uh, and all of us need to do, if, you, if you're uh, upset or disappointed about something happening in this country, uh, you need to become part of the solution, because if you are just focused on other things, uh, you are part of the problem. Um, and so, you know, along that note, I do want to sort of ask a question that another one of our uh, listeners had that I thought was which was a fun question, which was, "What do we do in our spare times? What do we do to to, to let loose and relax?" And I know that neither you or I have a lot of time to relax. You, particularly with with having kids, uh, that's got to be a tough thing to juggle uh, with uh, with uh, the television appearances and whatnot.
2: So you know, I'm a knitter. This is not much of a secret anymore because anyone who follows me on Twitter knows. Um, But I do a lot of knitting. I do a lot of cooking. I spend a lot of time with my family. Um, We do have four kids. They're really interesting. Uh, And and I'm just sort of a very boring homebody when you get down to it. So I enjoy my friends and my family in, in my downtime.
1: And just so you know, one of the questions specifically was, what is your favorite thing to knit as a gift?
2: Oh wow, that is like such a great question. Um, but really, the best—at least if we're talking Christmas gift—is a hat because hats are quick. They can be really interesting to knit. They can be really complicated, and everybody needs a hat at this time of year.
0: Wow, that's great. And I will tell you, I don't have anything as interesting as knitting uh, as my hobby. I, I will, you know, uh, say that you know I look. I do spend a lot of time between practicing law as a partner at a law firm, which I do. Uh, full time and all of this stuff, whether it's Twitter and op eds and the podcast and uh, and uh, television and all uh, CNN and all that it is hard to balance everything um, but I do have a, a you know a, a, you know some some private time and when I do it's either I love uh, everything from watching movies uh, playing computer games. Uh, I uh, play a whole slew of games that probably people have heard of. I uh, am a big sports fan, huge Bulls, White Sox, Bears fan, uh, and play you know, fantasy football and something called Stratomatic Baseball. It's an old-timey baseball game, which I play with some of my friends. So I'm, uh, I have all sorts of uh, eclectic hobbies, but they're not as creative or as productive uh, as knitting. So I give you, I give you credit because you're actually creating something even in your spare time, Joyce.
2: But I, I live in a house full of gamers. What are you playing right now?
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. So I have to, I do not have enough time to play these involve, games that, that require you to have a huge time investment. So I play Hearthstone. I made Legend once, uh, but I usually just play up to rank five because uh, I can play it on my phone when I'm in the TV studio or in between. Uh, and then I, you know, I play a variety of other games, but not. Um, but basically just every once in a while, whether it's League of Legends or um, or, uh, you know, or Heroes of the Storm or uh, Overwatch or some of these games where I'll just play them occasionally because I just don't have the time to uh, play them more seriously. And I envy my friends uh, like Max, who lets us use his studio here, who get to spend half their day uh, just uh, playing games and, and watching movies and, and all that good stuff. So Joyce I got to say you know it has been for us over the last 4 or 5 months it's been quite a journey on this podcast and it is, you have been a constant every you know you have not been I think our most popular guest in terms of viewer uh, listeners and and downloads and so it's really fitting for us to have our last episode of the year with you on it and I just can't thank you enough for doing everything that you do for the public and all the different media that you're involved in, but also for being part of our podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I'm
2: honored. Thanks, you
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic.